All right, all right, all right. All right, open up with me, if you would, in your copy of the Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to continue on. My, my, uh, my hope is that this will be the last installment of this sustained critique of the Reformed Pado-Baptistic view. If, it, if it's not, we'll never, we're going to start the Lord's Supper next time anyways, and I'll finish up the last couple of things. So again, I'm going to try to move at a quicker clip so I can get through this. Uh, um, but uh, please, if you have a question, certainly. Feel free to ask. Let's let's ask the Lord to just bless our time as we move through this material. Um, God, we are thankful to be able to address these things in such an environment, uh, to be able to learn and hopefully study the Scripture with sober-mindedness and wisdom. Uh, we pray that you would give us humility in our conclusions and charity in our disagreement. Um, we pray that you would help our minds remember the things that particularly uh, we may need to remember in life and ministry, um, and, and perhaps just forget some of the things that we'll go over today that uh, maybe for a particular person and the walk that you have prepared to them uh, is not going to be helpful. Uh, and, and so, uh, Lord, would you give us uh, the opportunity, give us the uh, attention span, give us the focus um, to hear these things, to process them well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So again, we were talking about, first, we, this is one of the passages that I skipped over and I skipped over just because um, I don't know why, because I'm crazy, and I didn't organize it well or something. But anyways, oh, I just slept, put, touch, sleep on my pad. That is a rookie move. A rookie move, everybody. You can't move it like that. Okay. Let's do it, Let's do it like this. Here we go. Okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is this text that we want to turn to because it is used as a, uh, as a proof text, if you would like to use that terminology, for the idea that there is still such a thing as covenant children, um, covenantally holy, and therefore as an indirect text to say that, hey, and therefore these are uh, children, and, and, excuse me, infants are the appropriate object of infant baptism. If you recall in, in 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul says, for the unbelieving, he's, he's talking about, this is back up to 12, he's talking about a couple, of, he's doing a case studies, it's a couple of case studies here in 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, he's talking about marriage, talking about widows, talking about the married. He gets to verse 12, he's talking about a situation where an unbeliever, uh, two unbelievers were married, one of them repented and believed the gospel, the other one didn't. Given that later in the same passage, he's going to say, don't be equally yoked, you might ask, you might think, well, what, uh, what should I do? Do I need to be like, like back in Ezra's day, do we need to put our spouse and children away because they're not, not, not with the people of God? I mean, I know the cost of Christ is, is big time. Uh, is this going to mean putting away my family? And, and Paul answers that question. He says um, that if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And then here's kind of the payload verse, apparently. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. And uh, the Reformed Paedo-Baptistic understanding of this is, is essentially that uh, the holiness here is, a, a, they're obviously not morally holy because they're, they're infants, but what this is suggesting is that there is still this covenantal set-apartness. 
that they are born into the camp. And so you don't have to be regenerate or have a have belief to be covenantally holy. And that's because we still have a mixed community. There is this external uh, uh, covenant uh, that, that you can be in truly, but not actually be a believer. And that therefore they are, it stands to reason from that, that infants are nevertheless the uh, legitimate uh, legitimate subjects of baptism. The number one thing that always gets pointed out, and I don't know why it doesn't get addressed more, is that our, our paedo-baptistic uh, brothers and sisters don't say the same thing about the spouse as they do the child here. You notice the same, the same word is, is, is used. Uh, noun form versus verb form. The unbelieving husband's made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her children, or her, her husband, excuse me, Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as there is, they're holy. So you say, okay, that means the children are included in the covenant and can be baptized. But the whole on wait, the same thing is said about the husband, though, that he's made holy by the believing spouse. But nobody believes, it's certainly the, the people that we're, we're thinking of, and I'm sure there's somewhere, 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 someone who believes it, but no one includes the unbelieving adult uh, and baptizes them. Okay, why not? It seems like a, if you've you got to say of one, you've got to say of the other. We talked about one uh, Baptist interpretation last time, and I want to continue on. I gave you the second interpretation, and the idea is simply this, that Paul is using the word holy here, not in the sense of covenantal holiness, which is, again, a kind of theological architecture you have to smuggle in from the New Testament, uh, from the Old Testament, excuse me, into the New Testament, but rather he's using it like he uses it in 1 Timothy 4, 5, which is legitimate and acceptable that we're saying there are some people who come and they're going to tell you to abstain from certain foods. And he said that everything is, is, is going to be, well, actually, let's just read it. Let's just read it. That's what you do when you haven't memorized it. You attempt to quote it and you're like, instead of really ruining this, I'm just going to read it. I don't want to rob you of how he says it. But this is important because it's, it's a meaningful uh, part of how uh, I understand the passage. Oops. He says, uh, there will people come, there will time, the Spirit expressly, expressly says, in the later times some will depart from the faith, da, 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 require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Okay, and it's not suggesting that, uh, again, last time I said it's not suggesting that your McDonald's hamburger is made holy uh, by the prayer. It's not set apart as something ceremonially or covenantally clean. It's the common understanding here that this is, is legitimate. It's acceptable if it's received prayerfully, and that it also does not mean by just uttering a prayer. I don't have time to talk about the whole passage there. But the idea is that it is received the proper way as a gift from God, utilized for the glory of God, that, that, that there's nothing that is created that is when used the right way and for the right purpose uh, is unacceptable or not legitimate. So similarly, I'm suggesting that that is what, um, and, and, and by the way, many, many, uh, many, uh, even uh, paedo-baptists would admit, it's not all of them, that there's something going on like that over here. But certainly this is what I'm suggesting. Um, something like legitimate or lawful 
Um, and you might also think, it was pointed out to me for the first time ever this week, that in Acts 10.15, the Lord communicates in a vision to Peter um, that he should not call unclean what God has declared clean. And he's being called rise, kill, and eat. You know, he's like, I've never eaten anything unclean. Um, and you find out as the narrative developed there, he's talking about Cornelius and the Gentiles and all the rest. And he's like, these categories aren't a thing anymore. You might wonder then if that kind of covenantal ceremonial uncleanliness isn't a thing, why Paul would be using it to refer to it in that way. Here, the cleanness, the covenantal unholiness. Um, and so uh, I think that, that certainly we're on good grounds for thinking that it's something about being legitimate, something about being um, authentic. Um, let me say this, though. On, on this view, when one spouse believes something, they cause something to happen on this interpretation. Okay, A spouse believing has a causal effect on the husband and has a causal effect on the children. That's the... That's the the, the two, two main elements of this view is wholly understood as acceptable and legitimate. Okay? It's a legitimate marriage. That's why you're not supposed to divorce your spouse. It's legitimate. But that the believing spouse has an effect. Um, I, uh, so, and this is, a, this is a very common Baptist view. The challenge here is understanding what exactly the spouse does, though. For example, it's not as though she makes the marriage legitimate. Because marriages between unbelievers are already legitimate. We see that all throughout the Bible. It's not as though only, uh, um, only believers can have a real marriage. It's not what we see. In fact, you look at, uh, um, well, uh, there, are so, there are so many examples. I won't even do it. But, uh, there, uh, unbelievers can be married. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's not a somehow not as legitimate of a marriage or not authentic marriage. And so when she believes, she doesn't make the marriage legitimate. They were already married. They're already legitimately married. You say, well, um, well, what it means is it makes the, the marriage legitimate for her to stay in. But again, his whole reason, if you go down to the bottom, is that the marriage is legitimate, the marriage is legitimate before she believed. How do you know whether you, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I mean, the reason that they're supposed to stay in the marriage is because it was legitimate, because it is a legitimate institution. It's not like they were living illegitimately together. One believed and it became legitimate. And so then you have to wonder, what's the causal effect on the child exactly? I mean, if they are the offspring of a legitimate parents, they're legitimate so what's the causal? So here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting a, a third interpretation that draws on all the best of the second interpretation in terms of the background and the same exact setup. But I'm going to argue that the children referred to here are the children of the Corinthians and not the children of the mixed couple. Okay, and here's how I'm going to do it. Look down with me very carefully. You've got to listen very carefully. He's talking in third person about all these examples. All these examples, if you read through seven, in the third person. And notice what he does here. For the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. All right, everyone look up here. So here's the case study. The unbelieving spouse, you'll see that, is made holy here. Holy here. Otherwise, your children, second person plural, would be unclean. Not their children. There's no textual variance here. Okay? Otherwise, your children would be unclean. 
Same thing, to the married I give this charge, a wife, the wife should not separate, if you go back up to verse 10. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it's good for them to remain. Third person, third person, case study, case study. Then he gets right here, makes a point, and says, otherwise, this would be the case about your kids. Now, everyone has to do business with how the otherwise and what he says about children fits into what he says about the believing and unbelieving spouse. And here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that it's not saying that the spouse has some causal effect on the marriage or some causal effect of legitimacy on the children. It is, they are legitimate children and they are legitimate in a legitimate marriage, but the reasoning is by analogy. They are legitimate children even in the case of their unbelief, okay? Just like some of you all find yourselves married to an unbelieving spouse, some of you all find yourself with unbelieving children. Is that right? Yes, it is. Okay. Do you think it would be okay for you to put them away? The obvious answer is no. And he said, okay, the two have to be treated analogously then. If you're telling me that your children are going to be, are, are not the, should not be put away and that they are legitimate children because they are the offspring of legitimate parents, then similarly, this is a legitimate institution, even though one of them is, actually, is an unbeliever and might otherwise, you might otherwise think uh, that it shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be so. Look at this. I know this is a little bit longer um, explanation here, but I understand probably no one has heard this interpretation. By the way, it's, an, it's not, I didn't make this up under a tree praying. John Daggs, and this is John Daggs' interpretation of a couple hundred years ago. This is not some new interpretation. It's just one that has fallen onto the dust books of systematic theology and New Testament ex, ex, exegesis. Read this with me. The spouse-child comparison is one from analogy and not causation. In the same way that the children of the Corinthians should not be put away as bastard children from a principle of legitimate parenthood, regardless of their unbelief, which could cause one to wonder if they are legitimate children under the Christian arrangement, so too an unbelieving spouse should not be put away by the believing spouse from a principle of legitimate spousal union, which given that the other is not in the Lord could otherwise cause one to wonder if they are in a legitimate spousal union under the current Christian arrangement, okay? Um, this understanding is bolstered by the fact that in verse 16, look down there, it doesn't say anything about saving the children in this mixed marriage. Look at verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you save your wife? What about the kids? What about how do you not know where you save your kids? It's not in there. It's just talking about... Well, what I'm suggesting is that would be a, it's a pretty strange omission if the children of the mixed marriage is being discussed as opposed to looking at the Corinthians, pointing out an example and making an, an analog between the two. Um, also, that phrase otherwise here, um, epe ara, only enjoys one other use in the New Testament. And as it turns out, it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians 5.10, you will see that it is used in a very similar way to introduce something, um, to clarify something that if you were to believe, it would imply absurdity. It would imply an absurd conclusion. He says in verse 9 of chapter 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. That's the otherwise. No, oh, I'm sorry, not yet. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedier or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, there's the same word otherwise. Otherwise, you would need to go out of the world. I wrote you a letter not to associate these people, but I didn't mean don't associate with them at all, because in that case, you'd have to take a space shuttle out of here. 
Similarly, he uses that exact same construction. It's the only time he uses it over in seven to introduce some kind of horrible, some kind of conclusion that's obviously wrong to enforce or clarify his point. So I give you Mr. Dag in his entirety right here. Paul, and by the way, let me just say, I know this is odd. It's going to use the word intercourse. It's not talking about sex. If you read it like that, it's mid-1800s. It's going to get very weird very quickly. So just understand that when I read this, okay? Uh, Paul examines the particular case of intercourse between married persons and decides that a believer and an unbeliever may lawfully dwell together. He maintains uh, that the intercourse of a married pair with each other and that of parents with their children must be regulated by the same rule. An unconverted husband or wife stands on the same footing with unconverted children. If intercourse with the former is lawful, intercourse with the latter is equally lawful. In this manner, he shows that this Judaizing doctrine, if applied in its full extent, would sever the ties that bind parents to their children and throw out the offspring of Christian parents into the ungodly world from their very birth without any provision for their protection, support, or religious education. And by showing that this monstrous consequence legitimately follows from the doctrine, he has furnished an argument against which is perfectly conclusive. Okay? Let me say that you can actually still take the view that I just mentioned there that the, the, uh, of the uh, analogy and still not think that he switches to you all. He switches plural. There's a vert. You can still, you can, I, I don't think that's as plausible, but there's nothing with, with saying, there's nothing wrong with saying, no, Tyler, for whatever reason, I disagree. He is talking about the children of the mixed couple. You can still take the argument that the argument is nevertheless from analogy and not from causation. The, uh, the, 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 uh, the analogy that, that, in other words, it's not the spouse causes something to happen and makes something legitimate that wasn't. But nevertheless, even if it is the children of the mixed couple here, it's an argument from analogy. Do you think your unbelieving children are illegitimate and should be put away because you believe uh, because they you believe and they don't? No, of course not. That would be monstrous. OK, so no, do not divorce your unbelieving spouse. This is this is legitimate for you to be in. That is the idea. Any, any questions about that? I understand that is likely uh, the argument from analogy instead of causation is probably one that a lot of you have not heard. Any questions about that before I move on? Probably have to go back and look at this one a little bit more. When you hear a, the, the, your first time hearing somebody, it's like, oh, I'm not even know, know, I don't even know what question to ask. Yes, sir. Yes. So, ah, but exactly. But in Ezra, that is exactly what they're told to do. Because you find yourself with a with mixed, you're married to people who are not part of the people of God, and you have mixed children. You've got to put them away, your spouse and your children. Yeah. So that's the that, that's the idea that there's an Ezra an Ezra ten background. Going on here, something like that. Uh, oh, oh, right, 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 right. Oh, yeah, yeah, correct, yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, they had obviously, but they were children who were included in the covenant. They were children who were nevertheless included in the covenant. And so you had children who were unbelievers, but in, but included in the people of. That's why I use the phrase "the people of God." There, they were included in the people of God. Now, the New Testament, who counts as the people of God, is different, but it's still the same principle. 
still, it's still the same principle. I'm married to someone who rejects, who rejects God. I can't stay in this marriage. I got to honor Jesus. Following Jesus is hard. Got to get a divorce. He's saying, no, 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 no. Let me ask you a question. Your children believers? No, some of them are. Some of them are. Some are just like some people are married to unbelievers here and some are. Some of your children are unbelievers? Yes. Okay, are they legitimate children? Yes. Why? Well, because me and this person, you know, created these children and sired these offspring. Okay, so they're legitimate children even though they're not believers, right? They're Okay, exactly. So in the same way, if you're going to say that about your children, you got to say that about the spouse who's come to faith and is dwelling with an unbelieving spouse. That's the idea. Okay. Any further questions about that? I understand that I mean one that may be one you need to turn over a little bit more. I understand this, but I think it but I think it gets you out of trying to explain this causal this making legitimate something that was already legitimate. Marriage of unbelievers is already legitimate. What the, the difficult for that second view, the, which is probably the, the, the probably the main Baptist view, I'd say, is just trying to explain what is this causal effect that the spouse has, and how is it the same on both the unbelieving spouse and the child? All right, all right. I will leave you with that, and all all, the, all that to say, there are, those are I give I've now given three versions, all of which I think are more plausible than the idea that the that we're talking about something about the the covenant here that's not even. It's not even mentioned. Okay. All right. Let's go to the final, uh, the final kind of big argument here: the idea that baptism replaces circumcision. Um, remember, this is important because if the sign is the same in meaning and function, although it doesn't necessarily follow that it should be given to infants, it, you know, the, the burden of proof would be on the person who said that it shouldn't be. If it's the exact same in meaning and function and it's identical to circumcision the way it serves, and infants were given that sign, then at least it would stand through. Is that the case, though? Is that the case? Let me suggest this, that in one sense, baptism is the external sign of the new covenant as it is, uh, as circumcision was the old covenant. So there is a superficial and yet genuine overlap. There's a superficial and genuine overlap in the way uh, uh, they function, similar to how there is an overlap between a football coach's prior jersey that he used to wear and the coaching clothes that he wears on the sideline now. But it would be very odd to say that one replaced the other. Okay? You might mean like in a metaphorical sense or like, okay, you're kind of reading into that. But essentially it's he wore one thing then, and it, and it served a purpose. It indicated that he was a player on a team playing the sport. He wears another thing now. It indicates that he's a coach standing on the sideline, and like if you're Nick Saban, yelling at everybody. And so um, it is true that he once wore this over his body as a five foot six DB at Kent State, which is why he didn't go past that, pretty sure. Um, and now he wears this. Now is Coach Saban, but this didn't replace this in identity and function. There's this overlap, but not certainly not the same. This is important to remember because when you read our Presbyterian brothers and sisters or Reformed Pedo-Baptistic brothers and sisters, they are very, very insistent on this. Commenting on Colossians 2 and 11, which uh, 2, uh, 11 and 12, which is we're going to get to after Romans 4, 11 and 12, O. Palmer Robinson, who wrote a great book called Christ of the Covenant, says, The net result of Paul's statement is to bind together in closest possible fashion 
the two rites of circumcision and baptism. In the fullest possible sense, baptism under the new covenant accomplishes all that was represented in circumcision under the old. Hoxima says, A more direct proof that circumcision and baptism are essentially the same in meeting could not be given. So it's very, very important uh, that, that, that for, for the, their argument that baptism replaces circumcision and we are just moving along. It is an administrative change. But it means the same thing. It designates the same thing. Okay, we've already talked about what baptism does. I'll add here that when Jesus in Matthew 28 gives the command about baptism, it's to, you know, to reinforce this. It was given to his disciples who had been baptizing on the basis of John's baptism, but with different significance, all believers, because that's what John's John's baptism was. There's no indication that it was anything other than that. Um, And there's no indication that he is performing a covenant substitution, but instead introducing something new that requires repentance and belief in following Jesus. In other words, what the disciples would have had in mind in Matthew 28 is, oh, what we've been doing for a couple years now, we are to go do in the name of the resurrected Lord, not, oh yeah, circumcision. Does that make sense? It's the idea that this is, this is uh, something, something new, even though there is overlap. So turn with me to Romans 4, 11 and 12. Um, and I have to confess, this is one, of, I told you all last time, that, like the let the children come to me passage, it just takes all of the empathy I have. That I usually, I don't have a problem being just so charitable with a lot of these views. I just, every time I read the let the children come to me as a proof text for infant baptism, uh, something inside me dies. Uh, when I read this, it just seems like people who are so responsible handling the text in so many other ways just throw out Right, just obvious hermeneutics. But I'll let you be the you you be the decision maker here. Okay, you be the decision maker, and keep in mind that there are very faithful, very smart people who who hold this view. Which, if it maybe it's just my problem that it leaves me scratching my head. You all tell me. And in in Romans chapter four, we're talking about how Abraham was justified by faith. And he and he asks a question in verse nine. He says, "Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised?" For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How was it then counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And here's the two payload verses. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, but he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And the idea here is circumcision, uh, uh, circumcision and bap- uh, the, this is a, it's an argument from an understanding of what circumcision was. And then you kind of have to read the New Testament, I would say, back into it. But what he's saying, the argument is this, Abraham was circumcised. It can't be that Abraham was circumcised because of his belief. No, no, no. It can't be that he believed and he was circumcised and he was credited. That's that's not it. They said that's not it because then you can't explain everyone else after him who got circumcised because they didn't believe. So what it meant for everyone else is what it had to mean for Abraham. That's the argument. That's the argument. So essentially, circumcision has never meant 
circumcision uh, was not required. Faith was not required for circumcision. It was a it was a seal of the righteousness. It was a seal of righteousness. It was really a symbol of justification by faith, if you want to use that language. That's what it was. And you didn't have to actually have faith to have it. Okay, uh, that that is essentially that is essentially how the argument goes. Okay, so let me let me say this here. Number one, the passage literally says that he received it, circumcision, as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still circumcised. I mean, it says that, right? So it's hard to understand. Um, that's, that's verse 12, by the way, right? But who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham, before he was circumcised, and he received, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Uh, and there is a purpose there to make, here's a purpose here to make him the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Okay, so uh, it, now that doesn't necessarily mean a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Maybe you could say, well, that doesn't mean it's because of the faith, though. Okay, maybe you could, you could maybe weasel out of that. But it certainly is not entirely obvious. My guess is when most people read that passage, that's how they interpreted it. Okay. That he received the sign, he interacted with God, he had faith, and he received a sign that sealed the faith that he had, and the sign that he received was circumcision. Yes. The the Baptist argument is that circumcision, um, that 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 circumcision, it cannot mean for Abraham in this passage, like uh, uh, it cannot mean that. What Abraham received was a sign of the faith that he had. It'd be like believer circumcision. Okay, believer circumcision. Okay, because Baptists are going to point to this text like me and say, hey, look, he received the sign before he had faith before he was circumcised. I say, no, 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 it can't mean that. Abraham, that, that's, an inter, that's a misinterpretation here. This is a theology of circumcision we get in this passage. And everyone else who descended from Abraham didn't have faith when they received the sign. So it can't mean that Abraham received the sign because of his faith. Okay, it's not it wasn't credo circumcision, and so therefore we have this principle here that that if you go back and try to say no 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 look Abraham had faith, um, and so he was the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. So we have a different paradigm going on. The idea is no 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 that's an improper understanding of this passage. Okay, uh, let me just uh, this is a, this is a. Um, uh, and then the, then the analog is just made to baptism, by the way, in the new in the new covenant. Okay, here's a different it, it, when you and I probably in the notes I probably should have made the analog over to baptism a little more clear. I kind of left it at the circumcision piece, but the analog is it's over to baptism. Okay. Oh, we we baptize in for the same reason. See, look, you don't have to have faith to receive the sign, etc. But in with regards to baptism, objection number two. It's difficult to understand how baptism as a distinct Christian act is a seal of God's promises to bless belief with justification when such a designation fails to distinguish, I think I left a two out there, fails to distinguish children in Christian homes from every, every other children, every other child, that is to say. They have the same conditional promises. One of the challenges when you read the literature is to understand what baptism exactly does for our Presbyterian or Reformed paedo-baptistic friends. Okay, and as church history develops, there's a ton of explanations. Catholic Church has one explanation. Luther had another explanation, washing away of original sin. Westminster divines had another explanation. The Methodists 
another explanation. What exactly does it do? Well, it's like a baby dedication. No, no, don't do not tell do not tell a Reformed Pado Baptist that they should be doing a, a, a baby dedication. Um, what but what does it do though? Well, it, it marks them. It, it 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 in 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 this this difficulty of trying to say exactly what it does in a way that's particularly Christian, in a way that marks them out from uh, anyone else. If this is the sign that's a seal of God's promise, and that's what they're saying, and it's not even uniquely Christian because anyone who repents and believes the gospel has that open to them. Okay, even if you're raised in a in a home that is not particularly Christian. Furthermore, the Old Testament never speaks of circumcision as a seal, and the ba- and New Testament never explicitly ad- identifies baptism as a seal either. But it is odd that this is if this is a seal of God's promise, which is part of the, which part of the argument here, that it's given to a child, but for them it doesn't represent any more promise from a, as a theological category than it does someone who didn't receive the sign. Yes, it's okay. Yes, it's something that yes, it's something that authenticates and confirms something. Which is which is odd that you might understand it that way, but that is very important that it's understood as a seal. And you can be a covenant breaker and break the, but you are legitimately included. You are authenticated as part of that. And then again, that's gonna that's where you run into when you read the Reformed Pado Baptistic understandings of baptism. They sound great. Most believers, Baptists, would be a thumbs up on what Paedo-Baptists say about baptism. And then they look at applying that to someone who has no faith, and they're like, wait a second. Yeah, we believe it's a seal. We're stamping something that exists. Yes, exactly. And then it's like, oh, but there's this tension between what you say it is and, and the objects of it. It seems to be a disconnect here. Um, let me just say this. This is by far the most important objection. And maybe my language gets ahead of me here. Uh, uh, but but the, uh, the, the, the largest error is suggesting the passage is describing the general nature of circumcision for everyone who to receive it. And instead, the passage is clearly discussing the relationship between circumcision and Abraham. A man who stood at a unique place in redemptive history as the father of both the circumcised and the circumcised. Did I put this one on here for you? Yes, I know it's law text. So his circumcision designated something that circumcision could not possibly designate for any of his descendants, namely that he was to be the father of all those who believed, Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised, not because of anything distinctively Jewish, but because of the faith he had before he was circumcised. The whole point is to say, listen, this man was credited with righteousness before anything particular was applied to him that was Jewish. He was credited with righteousness before he was circumcised. The point of the passage is talking about Abraham's relationship to circumcision and how because he was believed and was credited with righteousness before he was circumcised, he stood to be the father of people who were uncircumcised and people who were circumcised after he was circumcised. That's the point of the passage. It's not supposed to be giving a uh, some kind of sum total theology of what circumcision is and its significance for everyone else who would have received it. And by the way, you just have to say this, the fox that spoils the vineyard here is is Ishmael, Esau, and the sons of Keturah. What did it signify for Ishmael? What did circumcision signify for Esau, Ishmael, and the sons of Keturah, Genesis 25? Did it signify, as as one brother says here, the highest signs of the covenant promises and blessings in Christ Jesus? Nope, because they weren't part of the line of promise. Whoops. 
We have to, we, we, we have, to have a little bit more, uh, it's not as clean as we would like it to be, but they were still circumcised, and they were still the offspring of Abraham. Okay? What did their circumcision, if it had to mean the same thing for everyone after Abraham that it meant for Abraham, what did it mean for those who weren't a part of the promise at all but were circumcised? The argument doesn't hold together. All right, I'm suggesting the argument does not hold together. All right, I want to go ahead and move on to Colossians chapter 2, uh, uh, 11 and 12. Uh, let's go here. All right. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 reads like this. In him, that is in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, now on the surface, it might be difficult to understand what exactly the arguments here. So I put it in argument form for you. Okay, number one, circumcision spirit, uh, signified spiritual circumcision of the heart. Premise two, baptism now signifies spiritual circumcision of the heart. Conclusion, because circumcision and baptism signify the same thing, spiritual circumcision of the heart, it stands to reason that baptism has now replaced circumcision and can be understood as identical in function and symbolic significance. That's the argument. Okay, and initially you're like, wait, wait a second. You know, Jeremiah 4.4, 4, circumcise the foreskins of your heart, Deuteronomy 10.16. Oh, there's maybe something here. Consider this parody argument, though. In philosophy, you can create parody arguments. I want you to listen to my parody argument. My sister's purity ring signified her marital status. Just don't give me any grief about purity rings. Just, let's go with it, okay? My sister's purity ring signified her marital status. My sister's wedding ring now signifies her marital status. Because purity rings and wedding rings both signify the same thing, marital status, it stands to reason that her wedding ring has now replaced her purity ring and can be understood as identical in function and symbolic significance. Whoopsie! Somewhere we took a, somewhere we took a wrong turn. Right? Somewhere we took a wrong turn. And I'm suggesting that that is the wrong turn that gets taken. Okay? Any questions about this parity argument versus the argument that's supposed to be? Yes? Well, it seems to me a little Yes, so so certainly, so certainly in terms of the what you're saying is in this in this argument right here, marital status does not have a defined referent, whereas spiritual circumcision does. That's true, but it's still the same reasoning pattern. It's still the same reasoning pattern. In other words, just because something signifies as an identical in a, at a certain level does not mean that it is all encompassing. Because uh, uh, it is nevertheless true that it signifies something specific, whether or not you're married. Just like whether or not you're circumcised or uncircumcised, this ring signifies whether or not 
uh, you're married. And so, but, but, it's, but my point is, although there is overlap between the two, and the argument definitely shows overlap, both of them show overlap, that doesn't mean identity and function significance. Okay? So that's why you can plug another term in there, and it says, sounds funny. Okay? You can plug a term in there where it obviously doesn't fit, and it sounds funny. So certainly there is overlap, but the, the point of the parity argument is to say that overlap does not imply identity. That's what it is. There is certainly an overlap, but that it doesn't imply identity, um, and that, that Baptists do not have a problem saying that, um, that circumcision and baptism overlap in significance. Baptists don't have a problem saying that. The problem is saying that they, ident they explicitly pick out the exact, they are identical in function and significance. Okay, does that make sense? Any other questions about that? Overlap. Okay, so did I put this on here? Okay, just like a purity ring and wedding ring, and the, the argument in Colossians 2 and 11, at the very most, shows an overlap, not an identical function or significance. And Baptists are happy to admit this overlap, just like they're happy to admit the overlap between the sacrificial system and the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper, in no meaningful way, replaces the sacrificial system. Is there overlap between what's going on between the two? Yes, there is. We'll hear about that in the next section. Does the Lord's Supper replace the sacrificial system? No, uh, it, it doesn't. You might think there's a much better candidate for what it replaces, and we'll talk about that later. Um, the second is this, though. The passage draws a parallel between circumcision made without hands, a spiritual circumcision and water baptism, not physical circumcision and water baptism. Right? Let's read it one more time. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, you're saying a circumcision of heart has been made, and Baptists can easily accommodate the suggestion that circumcision pointed to the need for a circumcised heart. Plenty of Baptists are happy to say that. Okay? Um, but the the... the, the the, whether, what's being drawn together here is spiritual circumcision and water baptism, not physical circumcision and baptism. It says this is something that uh, this is something that has gone on in your heart. And so finally, and I'm taking this argument from someone else, the passage explicitly clarifies that those who are baptized in light of this kind of circumcision made without hands are raised through faith in God. That's how they're raised from the waters of baptism, through faith in God. And thus the passage actually argues for believers only baptism and against paedo-baptism, given that paedo-baptism does not involve the faith of the person being baptized. Okay? Whoever has this spiritual circumcision, I'm suggesting that in Colossians 11 and 12 is baptized as an expression of that, and they are raised through faith. They're raised through faith. That's verse 12, right? having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith. And again, if we're, we're, we're still talking about baptism, it seems like we have something that sounds a little bit, like it comports a little bit better with believer's baptism uh, than, um, uh, than paedo-baptism, okay? So I don't, I, I, again, I, I, think, I think the strongest, the, the biggest, uh, the, the part for me, that is the strongest objection is that we're talking about spiritual circumcision here. 
and I'm suggesting that baptism, I already said that I think baptism expresses spiritual circumcision. I think that's what we have. Nothing here leads me to believe that physical circumcision replaces baptism, but certainly that there is an overlap in function. One points to what, what Israelites always needed. Always needed. They always required. Circumcise the foreskins of your hearts. The other one points to what someone has as a result of the fulfillment brought on by Christ, which is the promised seed. And now I'm living in light of that, and I am being raised through my faith. I am being baptized as an expression that I have a new heart and my desires uh, to follow Jesus. Very briefly, um, I'm going to just list off a set of questions to get, I just want to get through this very quickly, uh, that are very challenging to answer if, if baptism replaces circumcision. Um, number one, um, I'm going to, you know, number one, if baptism is identical to circumcision in function and meeting, why did Paul have Timothy circumcised after he was already baptized? If they're identical in function and meeting, why did Paul have Timothy circumcised to be on the ministry team? Which is a heck of a requirement to be on the ministry team. But he had him circumcised. If it was the same thing as the baptism and function and meaning that he already had, that didn't make sense. Why? There's just a why there. It's a difficult why to answer. If baptism is identical to circumcision and function and meeting, why did Paul go to such great lengths to demonstrate that Jews could still circumcise their children if they so desired in Acts 21? 20 through 26, okay? If, if baptism replaced circumcision, that wouldn't have been appropriate. That wouldn't have been appropriate if they were identical in function and meaning. If baptism replaced circumcision in function and meaning, why did they not simply say this at the Jerusalem council when debating whether or not circumcision was required to be saved? Remember, that's how it starts there in Acts chapter 15. Uh, hey, how about a great answer? Is, bapti- is circumcision required to be saved? No, of course not. And baptism, baptism replaced circumcision. I mean, this is a critical moment in the church. And the, and the issue was circumcision in relationship to the Gentiles. Why not just step up and say, no, of course not. Baptism replaced circumcision. Mark Ross, who's a paedo-baptist, I just love his honesty. He says, while Acts 15 might have been a convenient setting for making the point that baptism had replaced circumcision, the fact that it does not, or that no other passage does either, is not it by itself a reason to set aside the claim that baptism does in fact replace circumcision? Fair enough. If baptism replaces circumcision in function and meaning, why does Paul not just say that to the Judaizers at Galatia? Galatians could have been three chapters long. They're compelling people to be circumcised. Remember he says, I wish you'd go the whole way and emasculate yourself? How about this? Why are you doing? Why are you practicing circumcision? Baptisms replaced it. I mean, again, it's a shocking silence. If baptism has replaced circumcision, it's a shocking silence. It, it, it almost seems like it would be irresponsible not to say that in particular. Okay, all right. I'm going to close here. I went two minutes over. Um, next time, I'll have some. I'm just going to tie up some final thoughts uh, on this subject, and we're going to move. And we are going to move on. Thank you for your attention. I know that some of these arguments are a little bit technical. It's like, huh, what exactly is going on? Uh, uh, that, that is okay. Um, you come ask me questions. Go back and look at them. You say, Tyler, I disagree that that was a good argument here or there. That's okay. That's fine. You, you just come. Let's, let's talk about it. I'm not an infallible uh, exegete.
uh, or a systematician, happy to be uh, corrected and challenged on some of these things. Thank you for the attention. Let's, let's pray. God, uh, we're, we're thankful to have been able to cover some of these things as we come to a close here. Uh, and, uh, and, and God, it, it seems appropriate in light of a sustained critique to mention how thankful we are. Uh, even, as, even as a uh, Presbyterian minister reached out today, uh, this week, and told me how thankful he was for his Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters, how thankful for we are. Uh, we are for our uh, Reformed paleo-baptistic brothers and sisters in Christ and how well uh, they have defended the faith and their high view of the Word of God and the sovereignty of God and that we are alike in so many more ways that we are, are different. Um, and such a sustained critique can sometimes belie that. Um, and so we, we want to thank you for uh, faithful men, past and present, um, who hold to uh, those convictions. Lord, we pray that you would be with us in the next hour, that our worship would be a fragrant offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen.